Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's great to be able to join you, even if we can't be face to face. Uh, it's great to have the technology so that we can link up together and listen to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we can gather, even if it's even if we're separated, but in our own lounge rooms with technology to hear your word and we pray that you would speak to us today through John 17. We pray that you would encourage us and challenge us and that you would be a comfort to us during this difficult time and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. My name's Marshall if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at uh, Southwest and if you're joining us for the first time uh, then welcome. Uh, it's great that you can link in. Well, the inevitable announcement came on Tuesday. The 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games are being postponed. Until then, the International Olympic Committee had been holding off, making a decision. Publicly, they've been saying that the Games would continue, even if privately they knew that they would have to bow to the inevitable. To us, it might have seemed crazy. Why, why were they holding off on making a decision? But I think it's partly a reflection on just how important these games are. They're only held once every four years. Athletes train for years. They give their lives for what will probably be the high point of their careers. For most of them, it will be their only chance. They only get one shot. One Olympics, if they're lucky. One news article captured it with the headline, how many athletes just lost their shot at Olympic glory? Glory in that one moment. Cross the, crossing the finish line ahead of anyone else. Like Kathy Free, Freeman in the 400 metres in the Sydney Olympics in 2000. The glory of carrying the Australian flag, doing a lap of honour while the crowd applauds. The glory of a whole nation watching as she stands on the podium and the national anthem plays. That's the vision that drives so many athletes to give years of their lives. The glory of being number one. Well, in John 17, Jesus prays for glory as well. That he would be glorified. But he's not looking for the applause of the crowd. His glory is to be recognised for who he is, the saviour of the world. And he wants to be glorified so that the world might believe in him and be saved. Jesus' prayer is divided into three sections and they're my three points. Uh, it will be helpful to have your Bible open uh, because we're going to be working through uh, the whole chapter. Um, the three points are uh, number one, Jesus prays for the Son, that the Son would be glorified. And that's in verses 1 to 5. Second section, he prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. That glory would come to the Son through them. And he prays for protection for them. And then in our third section from verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays that the glory that he gives to us might result in us being one and pointing the world to Jesus. So, 
our first section, uh, Jesus starts off in verse 1. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Right throughout John's Gospel, we have seen the closeness, the intimacy, and the and the relationship between Jesus the Son and His Father. What belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. They are one in purpose. They are distinct per uh, people, persons, but inseparable in purpose and relationship. Now, we need to try to get our heads around what Jesus means by glory, being glorified. To help us, I want us to look carefully at the next couple, oh, sorry, the first couple of verses. Uh, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, your hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Then verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. The way these two verses work is that verse 2 is the platform for why Jesus can be glorified. It's like the foundation of a house, the concrete slab that holds up the, the rest of the house, the rest of the structure. And we can represent how this fits um, with this diagram. And we know that verse 2 is the slab holding up Jesus being glorified because it starts off with the word for. We could always also use the word because. Glorify your son because you have given authority over all people. Okay? Well, then verse 2 keeps going. That he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is the purpose of Jesus having authority over all people. The word that is a purpose word. We could also, also say so that or, or, or the goal of his authority. It's to give eternal life to all those given to him. So let's try to put this together. Jesus is able to be glorified because of his authority over all people to enable him to give eternal life. How does Jesus bring eternal life? Well, we know that he did that through the cross, his death on the cross, by dying for the sins of the world. And this is where his authority over people comes in. You see, only Jesus had authority to buy forgiveness for us by paying with his own life so that he could become the sacrifice for our sin. He was sinless and he died for us who are sinners. As the only son of God, he was the only perfect man. As the son of God, he was the only perfect man who ever lived. He was uniquely qualified. He had the authority to die for us on the cross. Jesus is praying that God would enable him to finish what he came to do. To go through the pain, the humiliation, the horror of the cross. And it's in that that he would be glorified. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Somehow hanging on the cross as a despised criminal, naked, rejected, would give glory like he had with the Father before the creation of the world. How, how could that possibly happen? 
How does the cross bring glory to Jesus? Well, glory in the Old Testament was associated with God's presence. After God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and met with them at Mount Sinai, he appeared to them in a cloud which is described as the glory of the Lord. Then later on in Israel's history, when Solomon finished building the temple and he dedicated it, the glory of the Lord filled the temple again in a cloud. So God's glory is associated with his presence, but it's also closely tied with his holiness. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. Above the Lord, seated on his throne, were angels singing, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy, meaning separate, set apart, utterly different. And in that we see his glory. As we come face to face with the holiness of God, we begin to see his love, his perfection, his beauty. That's his glory. And the greatest picture we have of Jesus' glory is him hanging on the cross. If Jesus came as a king in fine clothes on a fine horse, accompanied by trumpets and an army, well, that would be glorious, wouldn't it? That's what we used to seeing with kings. But the king of the world, the creator God, laid aside his crown and his robes and instead he chose to be stripped naked. He chose humiliation and disgrace. He allowed himself to be defeated by cruel, unjust people interested only in protecting their own power. King Jesus willingly chose all that for love, with no regard to his reputation, with no thought of self-preservation. And as we stand face to face before his broken body on that cross, we are confronted with a beauty and greatness that words cannot express. And that, my friends, is what glory looks like. Like the Roman centurion who witnessed Jesus' death, we can only say truly this man was the Son of God. Well then Jesus goes on in the next section to pray for his disciples. And we, we're on point two here in verses 6 to 19. And here he speaks again of the glory that will be given to the Son, only this time it's not given to Jesus directly, but it comes through his disciples. Now, as we read this prayer, it's kind of half prayer, half sermon. Have you noticed that? That's because Jesus is praying in the hearing of his disciples to comfort them, to encourage them as they listen to his words to the Father. And Jesus wants to comfort them with the knowledge of who he is. And also that they are his, his disciples belong to him. Not because they each chose to follow Jesus, but because the Father gave them to him. They didn't choose God, but God chose them. Have a look at verse 6 with me. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. 
and they have obeyed your word. And then verse 7, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. These words would have been an enormous comfort to the disciples. Remember from the last couple of chapters, Jesus has just told them that he's leaving them, uh, that they would be scattered. Peter would deny Jesus, um, that they've just, they've just heard. Their world had been shaken, was being shaken upside down. But Jesus is reassuring them that they still belong to him. They're safe. God has handpicked them to be his. And friends, this is also a word for us. If you jump down to verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That means that not only what comes after verse 20, but all that comes before verse 20, including this prayer here, is for all believers, as well as his original disciples. So Jesus wants us to be listening in to this prayer, because it's a prayer for us as well. He is praying for, for us at Sweck that the Father has given him. For we are his as well. We belong to him. We have been chosen by him. These are comforting words at this time, aren't they? No matter how much things seem to be spiralling out of control, Jesus assures us that he has put his name on you. You are his. He will not let you go. He has a purpose for us. A reason for putting his name on us. And we see that in verse 10. Have a look at it with me. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Jesus' followers bring glory to him. What does he mean by that? Well, as always, it's helpful to look at the context to see what comes next. Verse 11, Jesus says he won't stay in the world any longer, but he's going back to the Father. But his disciples are still left in the world. Then at the end, then the end of verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be as one as we are one. Now, usually we use the uh, NIV Bible translation, which we're using today. But in this case, I'm going to use the ESV, another translation, for the first part of this verse. And the ESV reads, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. It's a better translation because the original language has the idea of keeping or protecting them in your name. Like keeping someone in the faith. That's the idea behind it. Keeping them trusting in the name of God. Keeping them believing the gospel. Keep them in your name so that they may be one as we are one. And look back at verse 11. We are able to be as one when we are kept in God's name, when we are faithful to the gospel. Jesus is praying for unity as believers, a oneness in spirit and purpose that reflects the oneness that Jesus has with his Father. Because this follows straight on after verse 10, remember where Jesus says his disciples will bring him glory, 
we can be pretty sure that we bring glory to Jesus in the way that we are one. We'll come back to what, what it means to be one shortly because it comes up again in the last section. But firstly, Jesus fleshes out the idea of being kept, being protected in his name. Jump down to verse 12 with me. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name or in that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus says that the disciples were protected in their trust of him. None were lost except for Judas, who wasn't chosen in the first place. The rest were kept safe. Even Peter, who would deny Jesus, he was later restored, came back to Jesus. They were protected from the evil one. The evil one seeks to take us away from God, doesn't he? To stop us from trusting in him. So being protected is all about being kept firm in our faith. Notice it's not about being taken out of the world in verse 15. Let's think about what, what that means for us now. We won't be taken out of the world. God's people can and will catch coronavirus. We won't somehow be snatched out of, out of all that, taken away from that. So Jesus isn't promising physical protection here. Now, now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for physical protection. It doesn't mean God may not graciously save us or our elderly parents um, or, 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 or loved ones, but, but that's not what he's promising here. Even more important than physical protection and safety is our spiritual state. It's healthy for us to reminded, be reminded of that. God protecting our relationship with him is front and centre on his priority list. Of course, we should do everything we can to look after ourselves physically, to self-isolate both for our own benefit and for the sake of others. But when we think about caring for ourselves and each other, there's no higher priority than praying, reading the Bible, encouraging one another in our faith. And be encouraged and comforted because Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for our protection. No matter how difficult it is to do church now with the challenges of technology, uh, in the midst of our frustrations and struggles when we've got a house full of people, full of distractions, it's hard. It can be hard to focus on God and focus on church. But through that, Jesus is praying for us. He will hold on to us. Well, then in our third section, Jesus goes on to pray for all believers. And here he continues again to talk about glory. But this time it's not glory given to Jesus through his followers, but it's glory given to us. Have a look at verse 22. I have given them glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 23. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Now we can understand the idea of Jesus being given glory because he is God after all. He deserves worship and glory. But, but us being given glory? What's that all about? Well, somehow it leads to unity, we're told here. And the goal of that unity is shown in verse 23. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And Jesus says the same thing back in 21. This time it's a prayer that we may be in Jesus and in the Father. Look at verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants the world to know, know him through us. We are given glory to enable us to be as one. And being unified somehow points the world to Jesus. What does that mean? How, how do we make sense of all that? Let's look at unity first. What does it look like to be as one? Look again at verses 21 and 22. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as one as we are one. So Jesus is praying that his followers may be connected with God, that they may dwell in him, as he dwells in the Father and the Father in him. And then he prays that believers may be one as he and the Father are one. So there's a very strong connection between our unity with each other and the relationship that Jesus has with the Father and our relationship with God. Do you see that? So unity isn't just everyone agreeing and thinking the same way. It's being as one in our faith with God. It's unity in the gospel. Being united in our desire to give glory to God. Now, let's look at glory. Look, look at verse 22 again. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. The glory Jesus has given us is the same glory that the Father gave him. Remember the glory that Jesus prayed for at the beginning? That he would be glorified at the cross. That God's love and beauty and goodness would be shown most clearly in the crucifixion. And I think that's the same kind of glory that he gives us. Not that we go to the cross and die for the world like Jesus did. But we are called to serve rather than to be served. We are called to love each other sacrificially. We are called to die for us to ourselves. All things that Jesus did before us. To put others first. To walk in our master's footsteps. So how does this kind of glory lead to unity? And how does unity point the world to Jesus? Let me try to illustrate what I think it might look for us now. On Friday, I got a phone call from a pastor in North Ryde. The connection was that Bill and I had been involved with a kids program there a couple of years ago. Uh, I happened to be a friend of the, uh, the lead pastor from way back. That, that was the original connection. 
we were still having to be on their contact list even though we hadn't been to the church since then. Um, and, and one of the other pastors who I hadn't met before was phoning people on the list asking how he could pray for us and if there was any way that they could help. That conversation encouraged me. You see, this bloke didn't know me from a bar of soap, yet he showed genuine concern for me. That was an act of unity, an act of solidarity between believers. And it had the effect of spurring me on to want to reach out to others. Within SWEC, over this last week or so, I've seen a number of people sacrificially giving their time and energy to helping others. Helping with tech, tech support so that uh, dinosaurs and Luddites like me could use Zoom, for example. Going out of their way to pray for each other. Everyday acts of sacrifice and service that reflect the glory of Jesus in giving himself for us. And when we act like that, it really does add to our unity. I'm encouraged when others go out of their way to pray for me. I'm strengthened in my faith and I'm spurred on to want to serve others. And it, just, it doesn't just impact our sweat community. Our unity does impact the world. Now, in these extraordinary times, it may not be easy to see how we treat each other um, behind closed doors affects the outside world because after all we are literally hidden from the world at the moment but I want to suggest that our unity releases us to love the world so when my pastor friend rings me up and asks how he can help me it inspires me to start thinking about how I can also be helping others outside of my little circle when we are building one another up, encouraging each other not to just hunker down in self-preservation, but rather to look to glorify God in the way we serve others, particularly the weak and the vulnerable, that's going to completely change the way we act towards the outside world, isn't it? Friends, these are extraordinary times. We have a unique opportunity to reflect Christ's glory in the way that we stand up in the face of panic and hopelessness and sometimes selfishness. And we live as people who offer hope when the world has nothing to offer. I want to leave you with the example of Martin Luther, who also lived through times of plagues and pandemics. In 1527, plague struck his hometown of Wittenberg. Instead of running out of town and, and fleeing, as many did, Luther chose to stay and care for the sick and dying. He was asked whether it's allowable for a Christian to flee from the plague. His response was that God's people must first think how they can look after the vulnerable and the sick. Only then should they make decisions about whether to flee. Now, of course, this isn't the same as Sydney in 2020. Uh, I, I know that. But I want to leave you with a challenge 
of how we can have that same attitude. How can we shine God's glory by showing his generous, gracious love to a world in panic, facing an enemy that cannot control? And as we finish up, I want to leave you with some questions that, that I'd like us to think about uh, as, uh, as we finish off here in our small groups. Here are the questions, and we'll have a slide. They'll be written down so you'll be able to see them. Number one, what are some ways that I can add to the unity of my CG or the wider SWEC community or Christians beyond SWEC as well? How can I encourage, support and care for others? Secondly, what can I do for my family, friends, workmates, neighbours? to help them to see Jesus at this time. And then third question, how does it help knowing that Jesus is praying for me for protection in his name at this time? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for John 17 and the words of comfort that Jesus offers. Thank you, Lord, that he is praying for our protection. Thank you that he is keeping us safe because he has chosen us. The Father has given us to him and handpicked us out from the world. And Father, we pray that we would be spurred on, inspired to glorify you in the way that we seek to serve one another, build one another up in unity in the faith, as together we seek to glorify your name. And Lord, we pray that uh, in this extraordinary time, we might stand up and shine as stars to a world that doesn't have hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.